Welcome to the DTB podcast for April 2014, volume 52, number four. My name is David Fazakli, I'm DTB's deputy editor, and joining me for this podcast by telephone this week is James K, DTB's editor-in-chief. Hello there. Hi, James. I thought we'd kick off with the editorial this week. Uh, we're looking at metformin and some advice on prescribing in, in renal disease. Do you want to say a bit about why we're worried about its use in, in renal disease? Yes, I mean, it, it might come as some surprise to, to a lot of clinicians. Uh, metformin is a drug that's been around for a long time. In the summary of product characteristics, it's actually contraindicated in patients with renal failure or even with renal dysfunction with a creatinine clearance of less than 60 mils per minute. Uh, that may come as quite a surprise to a lot of clinicians. And the, the basis for our concerns over and perhaps the cautiousness of the SPC in terms of its use in renal disease is because of what? Well, there was another biguanide called uh, fenformin that was actually suspended, had its license suspended in the 1970s because of a high rate of lactic acidosis. So the shadow of this complication has hung over the biguanides since then. And I think there's always been a concern that because metformin is excreted by the kidneys, that we've got to be careful if there was any problems with renal disease. So we've got probably a, a problem by association, as you say, with the previous biguanide, which isn't available anymore. What about evidence to support or refute its safety concerns? Do we have much? Obviously, we've got a, a lot of clinical evidence over the licensing time of metformin and um, certainly both NICE and uh, the Renal Drug Handbook actually suggest that we can be a little more relaxed about our use of metformin in patients with renal failure. There still needs to be caution and the BNF still advises caution in renal impairment but actually um, it's not until we get to glomerular filtration rates below 30 mils per minute that uh, NICE suggests that it's avoided. And so the, the various sources that you describe there, are they in agreement as, as to what we should do? Well, this is a problem. Uh, each one has its own sort of levels at which they suggest you do X or Y. And I think one of the, the drives of our editorial is to say, look, this is a useful drug. It's one of the few diabetic drugs we have where we can demonstrate that it actually has an impact on hard outcomes for diabetics. And therefore, you know, can we not have some sort of uniformity on advice for clinicians who want to use this drug in diabetics? So try and some, some form of standardization and, yeah. and perhaps something to help guide patients as well. Absolutely, yes. Right, but overall we like metformin. Overall, metformin is good. Excellent. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, first article this month is the second part of a, of a two-part series that we started last month, which is looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, last month, we looked at some of the psychological interventions. This month, what's the key theme that we, that we look at? Well, we've been looking at um, mostly the pharmacological treatment options for PTSD and a few other therapies that have been suggested in the past, things like self-help interventions and complementary for therapies such as acupuncture. Okay, so focusing first on the uh, drug interventions... Uh, what do we have that's, that's licensed for, for this indication? Well, in the, in the UK, um, the licensed preparations we have are paroxetine and sertraline. We have a number of other 
um, SSRIs and other uh, drugs that have been used or, or have been trialed in the management of PTSD. But those are the only two drugs that we actually have licensed in, in Europe. And do we find that they make a significant difference? Well, they, they, they do seem to have um, some benefit. I mean, I think that the, the overarching um, theme here is that the benefits often are, are moderate. Of any intervention or, or drugs in particular? I was going to say, yes, of, of, I mean, of drug interventions. I mean, and the general consensus is that drug treatment shouldn't be first line in our management of PTSD. Okay, so it's an adjunct to uh, some of the issues we talked about last last. Yeah, month. so that's right. So it's either an adjunct, or you know, if if patients are unwilling to um, try psychological therapies, then obviously uh, they are an option for a clinician to discuss with the patient and consider in that situation. And then overall, we try and draw it all together with with looking at some of the guidelines that mm. that are produced. Is there a similarity between? I mean, we look at NICE, we look at what the American guidelines say, and we look at some Australian guidelines. By and large, is there overlap between them? I, th- I think the general th- thrust of all um, the guidelines is, is very similar in that most of them suggest that we shouldn't use drugs as a routine first-line treatment. They should uh, be really spared for those that have failed to respond to CBT-type interventions but they are an option, and they, they generally have a similar approach in that they suggest uh, the SSRIs as first-line options, and then other options are available second and third line after that. So if you are going to go for drug therapy, by and large, go for the licensed uh, SSRIs? That's right. I think that's, I mean, I think, you know, we know there's new GMC guidance out, which does suggest that if there is a licensed product for the management of a disease that that really should be your first port of call. Unless, of course, there are other good clinical reasons why you should uh, trial a, a different drug. Okay, thank you very much. And our second article is a review of a new laxative, Lubiprostone, otherwise known as Amitiza by its trade name. What does it do, James? Well, this is a, a new type of uh, laxative that works by basically on the chloride channel activation site. So uh, it causes chloride to be excreted into the bowel and sodium follows and uh, this causes fluid to enter the bowel and a laxative effect as a a result of that. So a, a type of osmotic laxative. Precisely. Okay. And lots of clinical trials? Um, we've got two double-blind randomized controlled trials. Uh, in fact, I think two have been published in full, and we've got a third one which has been published as an abstract. So we've got, I mean, that's usually a, a clutch of trials is what we have with new licensed drugs at phase three. So it's uh, a, a, the usual sort of um, level of evidence we have at this point. And the primary outcome, what were they looking for? Well, as always, with laxative studies, or any, any drug study these days, you tend to have it versus placebo, and it seems to be effective in improving softness and frequency of, of stool. So it, it, it works, certainly, as a laxative. So a small increase in the number of uh, spontaneous bowel movements. Indeed. And interestingly, one thing we do pick out is the license indication. It's only currently got a license in the UK for a limited time, isn't it? Yes, just for, just for two weeks. We're not sure that the trials that 
were used for the licensing of this drug were four weeks long. I think there were some concerns, perhaps, that um, the efficacy of it began to decline after two or weeks or so, and this was the underlying reason why. But uh, interesting enough, there's no such limitation put to this drug in the USA. Right. So in this country, it'll be two weeks, but doesn't say how often you can repeat it. No. But in no. other parts of the world, it's it's uh, not restricted. Exactly. Um, and just thought we'd pick up a couple of issues from Select this month. Uh, the first one I caught my eye was the uh, European Medicines Agency reviewing uh, the impact of body weight on effectiveness of emergency hormonal contraception. Yes, that's right. I mean, this has been something, actually, which has been a sort of grumbling issue for some time. And uh, the summary of product characteristics for the levonorgestrel-containing emergency contraceptives have you know, always raised concerns that efficacy in women over 80 kilos might be an issue. I think quite rightly the European Medicines Agency are reviewing this to see whether they actually ought to alter the licensing rules for this class of drug. Um, in the obese or the, the, the heavier women. I mean, I think at this stage it doesn't alter our management of these patients and we shouldn't be making any changes to our current prescribing habits, but I think watch this space. And interestingly, one product not available in this country but has been licensed with a change in its summary product characteristics making reference to the weight issue which I think is the one product from That's right, from yeah, that's right. But at the moment, uh, st- stay as you are in this country. I think at this stage, at the moment, stay as you are indeed. And finally, paracetamol and osteoarthritis, a bit of a controversial issue. What's the background? Yes, this is, this is um, NICE set up a clinical decision group to look at their guidance on the management of osteoarthritis again. Their previous guidance, I think, had been done in 2005, and they've just published their new guidance in February. This caused some controversy because when it came out in draft form in August last year, one of the major recommendations in the guidance was uh, that we shouldn't routinely offer paracetamol as an option in the management of joint pain. And the rationale behind this was that they had uh, felt that in the studies they'd looked at some cohort studies, they felt that actually the risks of using paracetamol for the management of pain and osteoarthritis were actually too great and were actually not not worth taking for the therapeutic benefits that paracetamol offered. Now, this, this has caused a bit of a stir because obviously paracetamol is used by a lot of people and it's available over the counter. And the MHRA, um, I, at the moment, are reviewing the evidence surrounding paracetamol on the basis of this. Now, because that review is ongoing, currently the NICE guidance that's been issued has basically left out all the advice on therapeutics in osteoarthritis. So it's a guidance with a bit of a hole in it at the moment, and we wait to see what the MHRA make of it. But it is a controversy. The studies that NICE looked at, which brought out this worry about paracetamol, are not new studies. This is evidence that's been around for a long time. So it'll be interesting to see where this runs and what happens. But I think at the moment, there's no reason for us to be running scared of using paracetamol as we always have. I presume the problem, as ever with any any trial of, of 
particularly in osteoarthritis, is that the quality of the data that we've got is is pretty poor. That even the non-steroidal trials are either going to be old, presumably of small patient numbers, and probably not the right comparators. So presumably looking for paracetamol data is even harder. Absolutely. And of course, you know, paracetamol was off license well before a lot of these trials were being thought of. And, the other, and there's lots and lots of possible conflictions. You know, if a lot of the data that was used was from cohort studies uh, based on primary care data from some time ago now. And of course, it's not easy always to tell from the data why one patient's been given paracetamol and another one a non-steroidal. And certainly with my GP hat on, uh, I'm not going to be using non-steroidals in frail elderly patients with renal disease or a past history of uh, GI bleed. And therefore, it may well be that patients uh, on paracetamol in these cohort studies actually were a a select group and there is an element of bias in, in, uh, as a result of that. So the original, uh, as it were, what NICE were going to say it, and what they circulated in their draft has, has been withdrawn. Uh, we, we default back to the original position that paracetamol is still okay, but just being aware that there is a review ongoing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think we all know that paracetamol hasn't been great in the management of osteoarthritis. If you look at the numbers needed to treat for one person to get about a 50% reduction in their joint pain, you're talking about an NNT of about seven. So that compares with anti-inflammatories around two to three. So it's never been great, but I think um, we've just had the MHRA giving us a warning about diclofenac, saying its cardiovascular risk profile is as bad as COX-2 inhibitors. You know, we've got lots of evidence um, which raises uh, some questions over using non-steroidals in frail people. So I think paracetamol at this point is still very much first line in the management in these sorts of people. Uh, And yes, we stick to the original guidance at this stage until we hear otherwise. So wait for the MHRA to conclude its review and then we'll revisit it. Excellent. I'm sure we will. Okay, thank you very much. And I think that's it for this month. Thank you very much. Thank you, James.